Chapter 10. A Bosom Friend Returning to the Spouter Inn from the chapel, I found Quigqueg there quite alone. He having left the chapel before the benediction sometime, he was sitting on a bench before the fire with his feet on the stove hearth, and in one hand was holding close up to his face that little negro idol of his, peering hard into its face, and with a jackknife gently whittling away at its nose, meanwhile humming to himself in his heathenish way. But being now interrupted, he put up the image, and pretty soon, going to the table, took up a large book there, and placing it on his lap, began counting the pages with deliberate regularity, at every fifteen pages, as I fancied, stopping a moment, looking vacantly around him, and giving utterance to a long-drawn gurgling whistle of astonishment. He would then begin at the next fifty, seeming to commence at a number one each time, as though he could not count more than fifty and it was only by such a large number of fifties being found together that his astonishment of the multitude of pages was excited. With much interest I sat watching him, savage though he was, and hideously marred about the face, at least to my taste, his countenance yet had something in it which was by no means disagreeable. You cannot hide the soul. Through all his unearthly tattooings, I thought I saw the traces of a simple, honest heart, and in his large, deep eyes, fiery black and bold, there seemed tokens of spirit that would dare a thousand devils. And besides all this, there was a certain lofty bearing about the pagan, which even his uncouthness could not altogether maim. He looked like a man who had never cringed, and had never had a creditor. Whether it was, too, that his head being shaved, his forehead was drawn out in a freer and brighter relief, and looking more expansive than it otherwise would. This I would not venture to decide, but certain it was his head was phrenologically an excellent one. It may seem ridiculous, but it reminded me of General Washington's head, as seen in popular busts of him. It had the same long, rectangular, graded, retreating slope from above the brows, which was likewise very projecting, like two long promontories thickly wooded on top. Quigqueg was George Washington, cannibalistically developed. While I was thus closely scanning him, half pretending meanwhile to be looking out at the storm from the casement, he never heeded my presence, never troubled himself with so much as a single glance, but appeared wholly occupied with counting the pages of the marvelous book. Considering how sociably he had been sleeping together the previous night, and especially considering the affectionate arm I found thrown over me upon waking in the morning, I thought this indifference of him very strange. But savages are strange beings. At times you do not know exactly how to take them. At first they are overawing, their calm collectedness of simplicity seemed a Socratic wisdom. I had noticed also that Quigquag never consorted at all, or but very little, with the same seaman in the inn. He made no advances whatever, appeared to have no desire to enlarge his circle of acquaintances. All this struck me as mighty singular, yet, upon second thoughts, there was something almost sublime in it. Here was a man some twenty thousand miles from home, by the way of Cape Horn, that is, which was the only way he could get there, thrown among people as strange to him as though he were the planet Jupiter, and yet he seemed entirely at his ease, preserving the utmost serenity, content with his own companionship, always equal to himself. Surely this was a touch of fine philosophy, though no doubt he had never heard there was such a thing as that, but we mortals should not be conscious of so living or so striving. So soon as I hear that such or such a man giving himself out to be a philosopher, I conclude that, like the dyspeptic old woman, he must have broken his digester. 
As I sat there in that now lonely room, the fire burning low, in the mild stage when, after his first intensity was warmed the air, it then only glows to be looked at, the evening shades and phantoms gathering round the casements and peering in upon us silent, solitary twain, the storm booming without the solemn walls, I began to be sensible of strange feelings. I felt a melting in me. No more my splintered heart and maddened hand were turned against the wolfish world. This soothing savage had redeemed it. There he sat, his very indifference speaking a nature in which there lurked no civilized hypocrisies and bland deceits. Wild he was, a very sight of sights to see, yet I began to feel myself mysteriously drawn towards him. And those same things that would have repelled most others, they were the very magnets that thus drew me. I'll try a pagan friend, thought I, since Christian kindness has proved but hallow courtesy. I drew my bench near him and made some friendly signs and hints, doing my best to talk with him meanwhile. At first he little noticed these advances, but presently upon my referring to his last night's hospitalities, he made out to ask me whether we were again to be bedfellows. I told him yes, whereat I thought he looked pleased, perhaps a little complimented. We then turned over the book together, and I endeavored to explain him the purpose of printing and the meaning of the few pictures that were in it. Thus I soon engaged his interest, and from that we went on to jabbering the best we could about the various outer sights to see in this famous town. Soon I proposed a social smoke, and, producing his pouch and tomahawk, he quietly offered me a puff. And then we sat exchanging puffs from that pipe of his, and keeping it regularly passed between us. If there yet lurked any ice of indifference toward me in the pagan's breast, this pleasant, genial smoke we had soon thawed it out, and left us cronies. He seemed to take to me as naturally and unbidingly as I to him, and when our smoke was over, he pressed his forehead against mine, clasped me around the waist, and said that henceforth we were married, meaning, in his country's phrase, that we were bosom friends. He would gladly die for me, if need should be. In a countryman, this sudden flame of friendship would have seemed too far premature, a thing to be much distrusted. But in this simple savage, those old rules would not apply. After supper, and another social chat and smoke, we went to our room together. He made me a present of his embalmed head, took out his enormous tobacco wallet, and groping under the tobacco, drew out some thirty dollars in silver, and spreading them on the table, and mechanically dividing them into two equal portions, pushed one of them toward me and said it was mine. I was going to remonstrate, but he silenced me by pouring them into my trousers pocket. I let them stay. He then went about his evening prayers, took out his idol, and removed the paper fireboard. By certain signs and symptoms, I thought he seemed anxious for me to join him, but well knowing what was to follow, I deliberated a moment whether, in case he invited me, I would comply otherwise. I was a good Christian, born and bred in the bosom of the infallible Presbyterian Church, how then could I unite with this wild idolater in worshipping this piece of wood? But what is worship, thought I? Do you suppose now, Ishmael, that the magnanimous god of heaven and earth, pagans and all included, can possibly be jealous of an insignificant bit of black wood? Impossible. But what is worship? To do the will of God, that is worship. And what is the will of God? To do my fellow man what I would have my fellow man do to me, that is the will of God. Now, Quigqueg is my fellow man. And what do I wish that this Quigqueg would do to me? Why, unite me with my particular Presbyterian form of worship. Consequently, I must then unite with him in his. Ergo, I must turn a dollar. So I kindled the shavings, helped prop up the innocent little idol, offered him burnt biscuit with Quigqueg, 
salamed before him twice or thrice, kissed his nose, and with that done we undressed and went to bed, at peace with our own consciences and all the world. But we did not go to sleep without some little chat. How it is I know not, but there is no place like a bed of confidential disclosures between friends. Man and wife, they say, they are open the very bottom of their souls to each other, and some old couples often lie and chat over times until nearly morning. Thus then, in our heart's honeymoon, lay I and Quigquag, a cozy, loving pair. Thanks for listening to Moby Dick Pod. If you've liked what you've heard so far, consider subscribing or leaving us a rating on Apple Podcast. And as always, thanks for listening.